KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, if it was a good strategy for Special Prosecutor Jack Smith to charge Donald Trump with four felonies, is it also a good idea for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to charge Trump and 18 other people with a total of 41 felonies? Erwin Chemerinsky will comment. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. But first, today's news update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, maybe we can see light at the end of the tunnel for the Hollywood strikes. The studios are back at the negotiating table after writers have been on strike for more than 100 days, and of course, also the actors. The Writers Guild raised the issue of antitrust enforcement by the government, and the prospect reports the Biden administration's top antitrust people seem to have paid attention. Story here is that the WGA published a report predicting that if Disney, Amazon, and Netflix are allowed to continue producing their content themselves in-house, other platforms will wither away or be bought by one of the big three. And in fact, this is something that Wall Street has already begun to demand. Why is that something that could lead to the studios settling this strike? Well, in a sense, we have been here before. And in 1948, the Justice Department ordered the eight major studios back in the day. I mean, we're talking Jack Warner and Louis B. Mayer and Daryl Zanuck, etc., that they were both producing and distributing their product, that they owned thousand theaters each, more or less, and controlled both production and distribution, that this was a violation of antitrust law. And there was another version of this when the Justice Department harumphed loudly at the three legacy networks back around 1970, CBS, NBC, and ABC, for both uh, monopolizing production and just airing then. Uh, Ownership uh, of the stations. Yes. And so what the WGA report points out is that Disney... Amazon and Netflix basically have settled into the same role as the eight studios in 1948 and the three networks in 1970 of being vertically integrated in a monopolistic way. That's what the WGA report pointed out. And sure enough, uh, the Federal Trade Commission uh, chair, Lena Kahn, has appeared on a on a some platform or other, uh, saying that they, this was something that they were be would be looking into uh, at the FTC, and uh, that sent up a different kind of warning sign to uh, the major powers uh, against whom both the writers and the actors are striking. That oh boy, it's not just the writers and actors. It may be the federal government which can screw us up with our current business model more than the writers and actors. And therefore, and this is a a piece David Dayan wrote, my colleague Dave Dayan. Um, uh, therefore, yeah, we're back at the table. And my understanding here is it doesn't require the FTC to act against this 
vertical integration is just enough to get the studios and streamers worried that that could happen if they don't do something to make the writers and actors ex happier. Well, as ever in the current economy, it gets the studios worried and worse yet, it could get Wall Street worried. And that's probably their main concern. And that, that alone will, uh, uh, as we've seen, compel the studios to resume uh, negotiations. And then there's two stories uh, in the press this week about the minimum wage. The New York Times reports that because of a hot labor market, quote, the federal minimum wage of $7.25 is increasingly irrelevant when even most teenagers are earning twice that. On the other hand, you report at theprospect.org a different story about Boston markets in New Jersey. Well, yes, uh, Boston markets, which are known for uh, selling uh, pretty good chicken in New Jersey, has 30 outlets. And uh, the New Jersey State Department of Labor had been getting complaints from employees at the, the markets that uh, the outlets that Boston markets has in, in New Jersey uh, that they were uh, getting stiffed, that uh, their paychecks were late, that their paychecks were non-existent, that their paychecks uh, were smaller than the amount they were owed under uh, whatever their arrangement was with the company, and that in some cases uh, they even violated minimum wage laws. So that was the issue. What was exceptional was the response from New Jersey state government, from the Department of Labor, Usually, you know, this stuff is treated, okay, well, you know, we will get in touch with the company, see what we can do. Well, that was step one, and they did get in touch with the company and heard nothing back. Uh, what was exceptional was their response. They issued a stop work order uh, for 27 of the 30 outlets that Boston Market has in New Jersey. And if those markets uh, still stayed open, they would be fined $5,000 a day per market. Uh, that's the kind of aggressive enforcement that you usually don't see on behalf of, you know, beleaguered workers. The big picture here, uh, you say that in the history of American labor, I don't think we've ever seen a period quite like today's. Please explain. Well, the popularity of unions and the level of militants of workers is such that you would expect really major growth uh, in unions. Unions are polling over a 70% approval rate, which exceeds that of virtually every other institution, national institution in the country. You know, you are seeing worker militants at places like uh, United Parcel Service, Hollywood, hotel workers, bakery workers, teachers, you name it. But the labor law is so dysfunctional that except when you're talking about workers who really can't be replaced, like uh, academics or physicians or what have you, uh, workers who can be replaced are still getting illegally fired on organizing campaigns. The law on paper uh, makes that, says that that is illegal, but the fines are virtually non-existent uh, for all intents and purposes. And so what you're beginning to see is states that are preempted by the federal legislation, the National Labor Relations Act, still trying to scooch around it. Uh, a number of uh, blue states have outlawed what are called captive audience meetings, 
where employees are compelled by the, their employers to attend essentially anti-union rants from the employers with an implied threat there, you're, you're beginning to see sort of cracks in the anti-union wall. Now, I should add that there is considerable speculation that in the next two weeks before one of the members of the National Labor Relations Board term expires, we may see a host of really significant pro-worker rulings from that board on actions initiated by the board's general, uh, the NLRB's general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, who is really trying to put some teeth back into the National Labor Relations Act. And then there's the Teamsters settlement with UPS. Mm -hmm. This is the biggest event of the year for American unions, affecting 340,000 UPS workers. The news this week is that 86% of the members voted to approve the new five-year contract. How does that compare with the vote on the last contract five years <laughs> ago? Well, five years ago, the membership actually voted down, but the uh, Teamster administration then, which has since basically been ousted by the new one, the current one, found a provision that said, well, it had to be rejected by 60% in order uh, for the contract not to go into place. That caused a lot of bad feeling, which was one of the reasons why uh, the uh, current, that, that administration, which was moving from being headed by James P. Hoffa to his anointed successor, lost heavily in the election held last year for uh, Teamster leadership. And the new leadership under uh, Sean O'Brien, who is currently the president now of, uh, of the Teamsters, came in with a much more aggressive kind of posture in general towards employers. So the terms we've talked about many times here, more money, full and part-time union workers will get $7.50 an hour or more by the end of the five-year contract. Starting hourly pay for part-time workers goes up to $21. And as part of the deal, there were these other things we've mentioned in the past, very important, elimination of the two-tier wage system for drivers, ending forced overtime on drivers' days off, equipping more trucks with air conditioning, making Martin Luther King Day a holiday, and there's one more thing that you noticed. It's really the fine print here, just five words. UPS agreed to a Teamster demand to stop using driver-facing cameras in the brown trucks. What's that about? Well, that's about the growing surveillance of a lot of American workers. Now, let's put this in a sort of broader context. The American employer best known for surveilling everything about its workers through cameras and Lord knows maybe other means as well is Amazon. And Amazon is the uh, company that the Teamsters uh, have set their sights on for organizing. And I think they thought, and I think correctly, that this provision removing surveillance would actually resonate well with Amazon employees. I, I should also note that while there has been several efforts to, to unionize Amazon work uh, you know, warehouses, and one of them in Staten Island succeeded, not that they've gotten a contract, it really takes a huge effort uh, nationally to go after Amazon. And the Teamsters have, you know, uh, one of the very few unions that have the size and the heft 
to even think about doing that. And they clearly are thinking about doing that. But I think they also understand that uh, they got to get a lot of help pretty much from the entire labor movement to take on anything as large as Amazon. And as in the case of the writers and actors uh, and the federal government, you know, they need the Biden administration to weigh in as much as it can as well. Now I want to shift our focus to crime in America. Trump turns himself in on those felony charges in Georgia on Friday. The total, the running total, just to keep track here, is 91 felony charges against Trump, a possible 700 years in prison and four different trials. I wanted to ask you about an opinion piece in the Washington Post by Mark Thiessen, former Bush speechwriter and now a Fox News contributor. I wonder if you agree with his analysis of Trump's political mistakes. It's a little bit long, but let me run through it. He says, uh, imagine how different things would be for Trump's reelection campaign if, after exhausting his legal challenges to the 2020 election results, he had just presided over a smooth transition, agreed to leave office, gave a farewell address, promising he would return in four years' time, no stop the steel rally, no January 6th attack on the Capitol. And then imagine if uh, instead of contesting the election results in Georgia, accepted by Georgia's popular Republican governor, Brian Kemp, uh, what if Trump had focused his attention on turning out his base in Georgia to save the GOP majority in the Senate by winning those two runoff elections, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, He could have left office with a major political victory under his belt and momentum towards 2024. He would have been able to take credit for the GOP maintaining control of the Senate. A mistake number three, when it was discovered that Trump had highly classified materials at Mar-a-Lago, he could have cooperated and handed them over instead of ordering aides to hide documents and to delete the security footage. Mistake number four, instead of spending the last three years railing against a rigged election, a claim 70% of Americans reject, he could have focused on Biden's failings in office. And number five, rather than saddling the GOP with midterm candidates in 2022, whose main qualification was going along with his election denial theories, Trump could have backed electable candidates. He could have used his million, $100 million war chest to help Republicans uh, hold on to the Senate and win a big House majority in 2022 instead of just the five-seat majority they have now. Instead, in conclusion, he spent the past three years relentlessly promoting election lies, putting revenge ahead of victory at the polls, costing his party control of the Senate, diverting millions of dollars from campaign contributors away from campaigning against Democrats and towards his own legal defense and alienating swing voters who will decide the next election. That's why he will lose next November. That's what Fox News contributor Mark Thiessen argues in the Washington Post. I wonder if you disagree with any of this. Uh, Not really. No. I mean, I think that is What's left of mainstream Republican critique of Trump uh, is, uh, in its own terms, quite correct. I'm sure Mitch McConnell agrees with every word in that piece. Uh, It'd be interesting to know uh, whether Kevin McCarthy has even permitted himself to form an opinion uh, (laughs) on on these issues. 
but yeah, he's he's basically right. Although I have to say, I'm not entirely sure Trump's going to lose next year. So uh, on that, which is really the all important issue, you know, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, shifting the focus to L.A., where, of course, the biggest issue of the year and of the decade remains homelessness. The New York Times had a big story on Wednesday about how Detroit which has a higher poverty rate than Los Angeles, has a much lower rate of homelessness. What is the reason for that? Well, you know, Detroit in the middle of the 20th century was a city of 2 million residents. It's now a city of roughly half a million residents. So it's shrunk by 75%. And anyone who drives through Detroit, you know, immediately notices there are more abandoned houses in Detroit than there are houses of any kind, let's say in San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> it's really not hard to find shelter in Detroit. That, that's a legitimate story, but it can basically be covered in two paragraphs max. <laughs> okay. Finally, it's time for Where's Melania? A regular feature of this broadcast. The news this week is that Melania is privately seething in fury over a social media post that Trump shared. It shows their son Barron behind a debate podium with the caption, in an effort to level the playing field, Barron Trump will debate Joe Biden. Trump's retweet got nearly 20,000 likes. Melania is furious because they have a long-standing agreement to keep Barron out of the public eye. Barron is 17 years old. An unnamed insider told the trusted website Radar Online, quote, Melania has been incredibly protective of Barron and has told Donald she would not stand for him to be exploited by anyone, even his father. He made a promise to protect their son and he broke it there's a good chance she won't forgive him. And the next time we see them together may be in divorce court. Close quote, Radar Online, mostly known for celebrity gossip and news about sports betting. It is notable that the last time Melania appeared in public with Donald was last June, uh, more than two months ago, at a dinner for the their granddaughter, Arabella Kushner. This is Ivanka and Jared's oldest daughter who was celebrating her bat mitzvah. I wonder if you have any uh, comment on the latest news about Melania moving towards divorcing Donald. Well, I mean, if she does, let's hope she is the forerunner of uh, the rest of the country. We all need a divorce from Donald Trump. Melania points the way. Harold Meyerson, readamitprospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We're still thinking about the charges brought against Trump for crimes around the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. 13 felonies there, bringing the total to 91 charges in four criminal cases. And so we turn once again to Erwin Chemerinsky, 
He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the LA Times, and the author of 15 books, most recently, Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. It's out now in paperback. Erwin, welcome back. Always great to talk with you, John. Well, last time we talked, it was about the federal charges brought against Trump by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. If it was a good strategy for Jack Smith to charge one person with four felonies, is it also a good idea for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to charge Trump and 18 other people with a total of 41 felonies? I don't know. And I don't think any of us know until we see how it plays out. On the one hand, the benefit of this is this is being presented as a so-called RICO case, saying that there was a criminal enterprise. What the district is saying is that these 19 individuals were part of an overall effort to defraud the state of Georgia and to undermine the election. On the other hand, trying 19 people together on 41 counts is enormously complicated and it could make it far more difficult to go to trial in a timely fashion and much harder to gain convictions. So it's a strategic choice, and we'll only know in hindsight whether it's a wise one. Well, the first question is, aren't these two cases really about the same crime attempting to overturn the 2020 election? When stated that way, the answer is yes, but they're also quite different. The Georgia indictment is just about what happened in Georgia. So in many ways, it's much more specific than what you find in the federal indictment. So it includes, for example, pressuring the secretary of state to find votes so that Trump could carry Georgia. That's not part of the federal indictment. There was harassment of election officials who they were perceiving as hostile to Trump. That's not part of the federal indictment. There's overlap. Certainly the desire to create false electors was present in Georgia and is also present in the federal indictment. But I think this is more specific to Georgia, and it includes a much larger array of behavior. Maybe the easiest example I can give you, one of the charges here is making false statements to Georgia government officials, which is itself a crime. That's not presented in the federal indictment. Well, let's talk a little more about charging Trump under RICO, which I recently learned means the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. I understand it's been around for 50 years. It was created to convict mafia bosses, and one of the great practitioners in the early days was Rudy Giuliani at the start of his career. Uh, but it's also been used to convict the pharmaceutical executives who are accused of fueling the opioid crisis. Of course, it's never been used in a case about elections and, of course, never in a case about the president. So this is a novel use of the RICO law. Tell us a little bit more about the strategy here. What the district attorney is saying is that there was an overall criminal enterprise. And what you need to do is look at everything that occurred as part of this criminal enterprise. And that's the advantage of RICO. Instead of looking at one charge and the evidence to support that charge, this lets the district attorney present everything that would support the existence of the criminal enterprise and everything that was done in furtherance of the criminal enterprise. And so it really opens the door to a broader array of evidence. It also frames the issue different for the jury. The jury isn't just asked, was this specific crime committed? 
the jury will yes to answer that, but the jury is asked more generally to look at overall what was done and then see the specific act is in furtherance of what's called a criminal enterprise. Of course, neither the federal nor the state charges in Georgia deal with what, for many of us, was the worst part of Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election, the violent attack on the Capitol by thousands of his followers, which, of course, stopped the counting of the electoral votes temporarily. Shouldn't this be part of of charge somewhere, somehow? Well, it wouldn't be part of the Georgia indictment itself because the incitement, if we want to call it that, occurred in D.C. The actions in furtherance of the incitement occurred at the Capitol in D.C. For the federal prosecutor, it's a harder call. I, like you, believe that Donald Trump engaged in incitement. The test for incitement is, was there a substantial likelihood of imminent violence? And was the speech directed at causing imminent violence? I think the answer is yes. My guess is that the special prosecutor, federal level, didn't want to charge this because of First Amendment concerns. This really goes to the question of Trump's speech itself. And I think the district attorney, the federal prosecutor, wanted to focus much more on the actions to subvert the election. I want to go back to this question of a case with 19 defendants. We've all been learning the last couple of days about Fonnie Willis's uh, current active RICO case. It's called the Young Thug case, which has 28 defendants. And this one, the court has been working on selecting a jury since January, eight months. If you have a case with multiple defendants, does the attorney for each defendant get to question each potential juror? Each defense lawyer gets to participate in the trial. That means that each defense lawyer gets to participate in the selection of jurors. It does not necessarily mean that each defense lawyer gets to question each prospective juror. In fact, in most courts now, the judge does the questioning of prospective jurors. It's not left to the individual defense lawyer. If, however, it were to be left to the defense lawyers, then all 19 would get the chance. That's just one of many problems with trying 19 people altogether. Of course, for a lot of us, the, the best thing about charging Trump with violating Georgia law is that even if he is reelected president next November, he could not pardon himself for convictions in a state court. And in Georgia, RICO is a felony charge that carries stiff penalties. I read it that if you're found guilty, you can get a potential prison term of five to 20 years or a fine, or both, and to get a pardon for a felony in Georgia, you can't apply until five years after you've completed your sentence, not five years after you start serving it. But speaking of pardons, is there anything in the Constitution that says a president cannot pardon himself? The Constitution doesn't speak to whether the president can pardon himself. No court has ever addressed that. There's an obvious reason why no court has done so. The issue has never come up before. No prior ex-president has ever been convicted, or for that matter, even indicted of a crime. Now, I want to emphasize something you said. A president can pardon for federal convictions for violating federal law. We don't know whether Trump, if we were like president, could pardon himself. That's an unresolved question. But a president cannot pardon for state law convictions. So there's a New York state criminal case pending 
There's now the Georgia state criminal case pending. If Donald Trump were reelected president, he could not change the course of those criminal prosecutions and he could not pardon himself for those crimes. Uh, David French wrote an interesting piece in the New York Times recently, arguing that the beating heart of the Georgia case is the 22 counts focused on lies, false statements, false documents, and forgery, with a particular emphasis on a key Georgia statute that prohibits false statements and writings on matters, quote, within the jurisdiction of state or political subdivisions. There's a similar federal law, but the Georgia law is broader. Both federal and state laws say you can lie to the public, but you can't lie to government officials about important issues that they oversee. And according to this analysis, that's a much easier case to prove. Federal law requires proving that any given Trump lie was part of a larger criminal scheme, but Georgia prosecutors have to prove only that Trump willfully lied to a government official about important, relevant facts. If they can do that, uh, those lies in and of themselves violated Georgia criminal law. Is that the way you see it? And is that the right way to proceed against Trump? It is an accurate statement of the law. It may be the easiest way to proceed against Trump. Lying to a federal official is a crime. It's what a number of people have been convicted of. They're interviewed by an FBI officer, and they lie to the FBI officer, and then that's a basis for a conviction. That's what's going on here. False statements to government officials in pursuance of their duties. I think that it's going to be very hard for Donald Trump to say he didn't make false statements knowing they were false, given what's been alleged in the complaint and given what we've heard. But I also think there are other strong charges against Trump in this indictment. Take, for example, pressuring the Secretary of State to find votes to put him over the top. We have a recording of that that we've all heard at this stage, where he says, get me those votes. The harassing of election officials in the state of Georgia. There's strong evidence, it's alleged in the complaint, of how election officials, especially Black election officials, were harassed and lied about. There's the complaint that Trump was trying to get a false slate of electors that then they want Mike Pence to recognize. That seems a, a, a strong charge. There's even charges that they were trying to tamper with voting machines. And that, I think, was one of the revelations of the indictment when it came out. So this seems to me a strong indictment. I think the question is just what you posed. Would it have been better to have it narrower in terms of the number of defendants, in terms of the counts, or is it better to make it broader to be about this criminal enterprise? Five of the people indicted along with Trump in the Georgia case are his lawyers. Uh, critics of the prosecution say that Fonnie Willis is criminalizing the practice of law. Uh, is it legitimate to indict the lawyers for the accused along with the accused? It's unusual, but it happens. To go back to something you mentioned in organized crime cases, there have been instances where the lawyers have been indicted for furthering the criminal activity. Having a license to practice law doesn't give you an excuse for violating the law. We've got to remember, in some of the other cases, lawyers were deeply enmeshed. For the federal indictment against Trump in Washington, D.C., there were six unindicted co-conspirators. We have every reason to believe that all or almost all were lawyers. 
If a lawyer is participating in illegal activity, he or she can be criminally prosecuted and convicted too. And finally, we need to return to the topic of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. That's the part that bars anyone from holding federal office, including the presidency, who, quote, engaged in insurrection. As we've said before, it was passed after the Civil War to bar former Confederates from holding office. But historians and now two prominent conservative law professors, William Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, have argued at length that it applies to Trump. And in The Atlantic this week, two prominent legal scholars from opposite sides of the political spectrum, former federal judge J. Michael Luddig, a conservative, and Harvard con law professor Lawrence Tribe, a liberal, endorsed the argument that the 14th Amendment bars Trump from office. Of course, Trump has not been convicted of engaging in insurrection. As we've said, he hasn't even been charged with that. But Bowdoin Paulson argue that Section 3 is self-enforcing. They say it's like the requirement that the president uh, has to be at least 35 years old. Did they convince you on this crucial point? I think they make a compelling case that no conviction is required to trigger Section 3. Nothing in the language of Section 3 says there has to be a conviction. What's still unclear, though, is who makes the determination of whether or not somebody who take an oath of office participate in a rebellion or insurrection. Section 3 doesn't tell us that. I think the way this is going to play out is some state election officials will deny Trump being on the ballot invoking Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and Trump and his supporters will sue. Or there's going to be lawsuits against state election officials to keep Trump off the ballot, saying that's required under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and then that will be in the courts. So I think that this issue inevitably is going to go to the courts and to the Supreme Court. Who decides if the requirements of Section 3 are met? And does it require a conviction? Is the evidence here enough? Um, I think what's telling in what you said is who is saying this? William Bowd, Michael Stokes Paulson, Stephen Calabresi, Michael Ludic, those are very prominent conservatives. Those are individuals who are founders of and active in the Federalist Society. That They're now out there saying Donald Trump is ineligible to run for president. Matters a lot more than it's people like Larry Tribe or me. (laughs) You say that there are going to be uh, cases brought in maybe several states to keep Trump off the ballot on the grounds that he engaged in insurrection. Can you tell us anything more about uh, where and when this is going to happen? Well, there was, for example, a New Mexico state court last year ruled that a New Mexico county supervisor was ineligible for having participated in the January 6th insurrection. So I've suggested two paths this will happen. One is I would expect some election officials in blue states will say, Section 3 is to use the words that you mentioned, self-enforcing, that they have to therefore follow it and keep Trump off the ballot. Once they do that, you know, Trump and his supporters will sue and say that this violates their rights to run as candidates. Or in states where the election officials allow Trump on the ballot, you'll find lawsuits by individuals who say it violates the Constitution for Trump to be on the ballot, take him off the ballot. There's all sorts of difficult procedural questions that will need to be faced along the way. For instance, in the latter instance, 
Who would have the ability to go to court to keep Trump off the ballot? Who has an injury that would give rise to standing? I think also what the courts are going to have to decide is, what does Section 3 mean? The argument on the other side isn't trivial. It says in a democracy that it should be for the people to decide who they want as president, and courts shouldn't be making the decision for them. On the other hand, as you point out, there are already provisions that limit who can run for president. You have to be 35 years old. You have to be a natural-born citizen. You can only serve two terms. Why is this any different in limiting what the political process can do than any of those restrictions? I want to focus on the bigger question, not about the legality or constitutionality of the 14th Amendment case for keeping Trump off the ballot, but this issue of the wisdom of doing it when he is running for re-election. As you have said, um, some people argue that while Trump is indeed a criminal, it would be better for American democracy if the voters rejected him at the ballot box than for the courts to rule that he can't be a candidate and for the courts to deny voters uh, the, the ability to make that decision. What do you think? I think it's a hard question, but ultimately it shouldn't be a policy question, but a question of interpreting the Constitution. I think it's unwise that the Constitution says to be president of the United States, you have to be a natural born citizen. But that's what it says. And courts have to decide what does natural born citizen mean? I think it's unwise that the president has to be 35 years old. If people want to elect somebody younger, shouldn't they be able to? But that's what the Constitution says. Well, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says somebody who participated in an insurrection or rebellion or gave aid or comfort to the enemy, once having taken an oath of office, is disqualified from ever serving again. I think that language has to be interpreted and enforced, even if from a policy perspective, say, wouldn't it be better to let the people decide? Erwin Chemerinsky, he's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. Erwin, thank you for talking with us today. Always my pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now we're going to do something we've never done before on this program. Our unpaid volunteer interim general manager, Michael Novick, has asked all volunteer programmers to take time during their regular shows to explain to listeners the critical financial situation in the distress at the station and at the Pacifica Foundation. We've never laid this out in this kind of detail before, in part because the financial situation has never been this dire before. We really do need your help. We need your support and we need your contributions. Please call and pledge at 818-985-5735 for many reasons, which I'm going to explain in the next few minutes. First of all, the Pacifica Foundation was not able to make the required payments for two big loans, which are now in default. We had a $2.5 million loan, the FJC loan. This is from the Foundation for Philanthropic Funds. Interest payments were due quarterly. We missed those. And a second loan for $2 million 
from the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, EIDL. This was a government program that provided funding to help small businesses recover from the economic impacts of the pandemic. Sort of like the PPP money, but this one has to be paid back and we have not been paying it back. Now the the $2 million EIDL loan has been sent for collection. Both loans essentially covered past operating expenses that were not met through our fundraising and operations. That is, this was not debt we took on to enhance our capacity to do better programming, to have a stronger signal, to increase our revenues as a consequence. We really did not want to default on these loans because the collateral is the KPFK building along with the buildings at KPFT and KPFA and their contents. Default means we could be forced to lose the buildings. The KPFK building has already been on sale for many months without a buyer. That's one reason why we need your help. We need your support. We need your contributions. So please call now and pledge as much as you can at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. In addition to the default on more than $4 million in loans, KPFK also has an additional $2 million in what are called aged payables. These are bills that uh, are over 120 past 120 days past due. The most disturbing one is the insurance. The Pacifica Foundation was not able to make the required payments for various forms of insurance, liability insurance, earthquake insurance, insurance on the equipment and other policies. So right now our insurance policies have been canceled. We are operating without insurance at KPFK. Then there are overdue bills for utilities. Just a reminder, the number to call is 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. We did pay the electric bill for power to the transmitter on Mount Wilson. That was required by Southern California Edison. So we're still on the air on the FM dial. We are far behind in paying the other utilities bill to the DWP, the city uh, uh, of Los Angeles, for power to the building. We also have $2 million past due to the Pacifica National Organization or the Pacifica Archives. But the biggest concern, according to our volunteer interim unpaid general manager, Michael Novick, is the inability to pay the general expenses of operating the station every day. And these keep adding up across the network. We don't have the funds needed to rebuild the infrastructure. We've been deferring repairs on the building and on the equipment. The Pacifica Foundation, as a result of the failure of KPFK and other stations to pay their dues, is currently not able to pay for the costs of the court-ordered elections to the Pacifica board, which are currently underway. Our unpaid interim general manager, Michael Novick reports, and I wanna quote his account directly. KPFK has contributed to these difficulties and crises over a long period of time. 
The station was living beyond its means for many years and therefore not paying our fair share for expenses rendered for services rendered to us and the costs of the Pacifica Foundation as a whole, accounting, insurance, audits, technical services, digital services, and legal representation. This goes back to many general managers and interim general managers. We have made substantial cuts in expenses, but our revenues have dropped, and so we are still in the red. Here is a shocking fact. There are no paid management people currently working at KPFK. That's why we're asking you to call 818-985-5735. Pledge your support at 818-985-KPFK. We have no business manager. We have no development director. We have no webmaster. We have no volunteer coordinator. We have no paid program director. And of course, we have no paid general manager. We have an interim general manager, Michael Novick, who is doing this as a volunteer. Some other positions uh, are also being filled right now by unpaid volunteers. And we need your help to do something about this. We need your support. We need your contributions at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. We're also facing all those costs for deferred maintenance and for the inevitable decay of the critical equipment, including the transmitters and the power supplies for them. Many of you are probably aware of the ongoing problems we've had with our transmission as well as our streaming services. We have experienced and talented and committed people working on this. But the prospect is that these kinds of problems will continue to arise because of aging equipment. We're in the process of identifying, prioritizing, and pricing all the replacements and repairs that are necessary. But these expenses are, are all above and beyond the everyday operating expenses that we must meet. Payroll, benefits, utilities, insurance, the website, the streaming service, the trash hauling. So we need your support. We need your help. We need your contributions at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. There's more. We have continued to be unable to pay our share of the cost to the Pacifica National Office for accounting, audits, and other necessities that are covered in the national office budget that we have not met our obligation to contribute to. The reality is simple. We have not been raising enough money to cover our operating expenses. So our fund drives get longer, which drives our listenership down. It's a spiral of decline that's been going on for more than a decade. And now we are asking once again for your help. We need your support. We need your contributions at 818-985-5735-818. 985-KPFK. And we have some premiums to offer. Let me run down the premiums that are being offered uh, by the wonderful Pacifica Archives. For a $60 pledge at 818-985-5735, we would be delighted to send you the Pacifica Chicano Sampler. This is an MP3 on a CD seven segments from the Pacifica Radio Archives on Chicano political power, 
the labor movement in the Chicano community, on the history of the Chicano moratorium, on the grievances of Chicano high school students, on 500 years of Chicano history, on the Zoot Suit murders, four hours and 15 minutes running time in MP3 format, all of that for a $60 pledge at 818-985-5735. Just tell them you want the Pacifica Chicano sampler. If you can afford a $75 pledge at 818-985-5735, we'd love to send you from the Pacifica Radio Archives the Hiroshima 2CD set. Uh, you'll remember that August 6th was the anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima in 1945 by the United States. The Pacifica Radio Archives offers the dramatic reading of John Hershey's journalistic masterpiece, Hiroshima, written following his journey to Japan in 1945, in the months after the bombing. That's on two CDs for a $75 pledge at 818-985-5735, the Hiroshima two CD set from the Pacifica Radio Archives. Also, if you pledge $75, you might want instead the Chicano Studies 2CD set. $75 donation at 818-985-5735 is an 18-hour Chicano Studies series on two MP3 discs designed by a Los Angeles Mission College professor currently used as required material for two courses. Disc one covers Mexicans in the United States from 1850 to the present. Disc two covers Chicanos in contemporary society. This is unique audio provided exclusively by the Pacifica Radio Archives, a gift to people who will pledge $75 at 818-985-5735, the Pacifica Radio Archives Chicano Studies 2CD set. If you can afford a $100 contribution to KPFK, we would love to send you the Chicano Lecture Series 4 CD set of, in the MP3 format. Over 50 hours of Chicano history featuring the voices of John Trudell, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and many others. $100 pledge to 818-985-5735. For a $150 pledge, the Pacifica Radio Archives Women's History 8 gigabyte USB jump drive, 77 hours showcasing women's history through restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting. Selections from Margaret Mead, The Color Purple, read by Alice Walker, Dolores Huerta, Odetta, Billie Holiday, Gwendolyn Brooks, Leroy Jones, Tony Morrison, Walter Mosley, Julian Lester, in the MP3 format on a jump drive that plugs into any computer or USB port. 77 hours of women's history for a $150 pledge to 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, $150 pledge, We'll send you the Pacific Radio Archives Women's History Month 8 gigabyte jump drive. $180 pledge. The Pacifica Radio Archives Black History Month 
four gigabyte USB drive. Call and pledge at 818-985-5735. Pledge $180 and get 30 hours of recordings from the Pacifica Radio Archives, the Black History Month Collection, a unique resource from the Pacifica Radio Archives, $180 pledge to 818-985-5735. Last but not least, for a $250 pledge, Pacifica Radio Archives Voices That Changed the World, 1,300 hours on a jump drive. Voices That Changed the World, now it's more, even more than 1,300 hours. They've been adding stuff to it. A collection of historic speeches and excerpts from the Pacifica Radio Archives on a USB drive that plugs into your computer. All of those for 818-985-5735, pledge from $60 to $250, take home one of these great gifts from the Pacifica Radio Archives. There's also a KPFK special benefit screening of the movie When Houston Had the Blues. This will be Sunday, September 10th at the Lemley Royal Theater in Los Angeles. The VIP tickets are sold out, but general admission tickets are available now. When Houston Had the Blues, a film by Alan Sawyer from executive producer Drew Barnett Hamilton. Sunday, September 10th at the Lemley Royal Theater. General admission tickets, $30. Get yours today. And finally, you've heard about this one before, donate your car or any vehicle to KPFK. Call 877-KPFK-AUTO, 877-KPFK-AUTO, that's 877-573-5288, and donate your car or truck to KPFK. It's easy to give. It'll, we'll pick it up for free. Your gift is tax deductible, and we will use the proceeds from the sale of your vehicle to bring you the news and program you depend on every day. So if you've got a car or truck you're no longer driving, give it to KPFK. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back in a minute with more special programming on 90.7 KPFK. And that number, one more time, 818. 985-5735-818-985-KPFK. One last word, thank you. Thank you for supporting this station, this program, and this network. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. 